Good morning. Welcome to each and every one of you. My name is Mike St. Dennis. I'm the associate pastor here at All Souls. It is so good to be with you, uh, to be able to worship together, especially uh, every fifth Sunday like this, when we get to have this, this kinetic energy, like Michael said, here in the service, having all ages, worshiping and studying together. Now, I know as we come in here this morning, I took an informal poll, I, I'm aware of the three questions that we are all asking. The first, how much chili can a human eat? The second question, how long until we find out the answer to question one? Uh, and we judge time in our house by Bluey episodes, and so it'll be about three or four Bluey episodes, and then we'll get to the chili. And then, of course, the third question, which is, what do Jesus, Adam and Eve, and the devil have to do with screen times and 16th century French philosophers? Now, like I said, that first question we're going to have to wait to answer. And the second question, we know how long we have to wait. But that third question, we're going to answer here all together. We're in the middle of our fall vision series called Future Present, where we're taking a look at our day and age and the challenges of living in, a, in this part of the world at this time and asking the question, what does Jesus want to do? What does he want us to become like? What does he desire for the world? And as we look at his vision for the kingdom and how it comes to bring healing and transformation, right relationships to this time and this place, we're also exploring some of the practices the ways of following Jesus, of, of taking on the likeness of Christ, of following him, that we might be ambassadors of the kingdom in this world, that we would bear the marks of hope, of grace, of truth, of justice, of peace with our neighbors, strangers, friends, and loved ones alike. This morning, we're going to just talk about how to become a community of engagement in a culture of distraction. A community of engagement in a culture of distraction. And we know that just listening to me is not going to be enough uh, to change your heart, but that we need to practice that. And that's why we have the room full of distractions this morning. So that we can see that this isn't just an idea, but this is a reality that we experience and walk through every day. We need to start by identifying what we mean when we say that we live in a culture of distractions. What we mean is that our present moment to live on this side of Atlanta in 2022 is a time characterized by an abundance of noise and opportunities. And because of all the things that are available to us, we experience a sort of distraction sickness that feels like a wind tunnel, a loud noise, a never-ending bombardment of ideas and words and images and feelings and experiences of every kind that demand our attention and demand our investment. Whether we are giving away our time or our money or our peace, our security, our resources. We have a lot going on and a lot to take in. 
But what I want you to do is I want you to think a little bit beyond just the ordinary distractions that we tend to think about. We're going to talk about screen time and phones and things like that. But I want you to think about why those things are so powerful and why they draw us and how they're at work. To see that it's not just that we are distracted people experiencing the symptoms of busyness of staying in touch, of staying logged in to the world, but that we are prone to these things because of a deeper need, namely to be in intimate fellowship with God. Our day and age is characterized by distractions. Two-thirds of all car accidents are caused by distractions these days. The human attention span over the last 20 years has decreased by a third from 12 seconds to 8 seconds, which as Stephen pointed out last year, is less than that of a goldfish. The average worker spends 650 hours a year checking and responding to emails. The average young adult checks their phone 50 times a day with over 2,600 unique swipes and scrolls and touches. It said that the average student ages 8 to 18 spend nine hours a day engaged with social media or thinking about social media or responding to their life in a way that they might present themselves on their social media. And we take in somewhere between 5,000 and 10,000 advertisements each day. And just the political text messages I get on my phone daily, I think it's probably closer to a million. In 2008, when the smartphone was just only a couple years old, 139 million units were sold. And a study was done at that time revealing that the average person encountered 100,000 words every day through television and the internet. Enough to fill two average books, or over 700 books a year, bombarded by images, and thoughts, ideas, activities, apps, all kinds of things we could give our attention and our investments over to. There's no question that we live in a distracted culture. But why is that? What's the root cause of our distraction? Is it simply the fact that we live in a technological age? Is there a simple material cause for why we are so prone to distraction? In 1903, German sociologist George Simmel theorized that it is, in fact, just the technology that's to blame. He speculated that in a a technologically saturated city, stimulations, interests, and the taking of time and attention turn life into a stream which scarcely requires any individual efforts to keep it going. In 1903, saying that the world is so complex and shaped by technology that you don't even have to invest in it and what it offers in order to receive it. All you have to do is wake up. Still others have looked beyond technology to the human condition and cited That maybe there is something about our humanity, a spiritual cause at root in our destructions. The 17th century mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal theorized that all our miseries and our bent towards distractions, they arise simply from not being able to sit in a room alone. 
Or as Friedrich Nietzsche wrote, distraction and haste are universal because everyone at the end of the day is in flight from his or herself. Is it possible that the distraction is not the root cause, the, the technology, the noise that we engage with, but rather it's a symptom of the inability to be, to be with ourself, to be with God, to be with others. If modern technology is truly to blame and the root cause, then this is reassuring because technology may be able to help solve the problem. And this is why analysts speculate that in the next eight years, the self-help app industry, including mindfulness and meditation, is going to go from $12 billion to $70 billion. And the target problem they are trying to solve through their applications is that people are distracted and busy with applications. As our community guide points out, these same devices and the way that we engage the world that helps us in our smartphone to order our calendar, to get the best directions or to call an Uber so that we can come and spend time with other people is the same reason when we get there we have a hard time being present. We are constantly engaging and exchanging. We are always investing, giving our time, our attention, our resources away. But sometimes when we are present and with one another, we are busy investing to be together with somebody else. When we are busy obsessing over our finances or our calendar that we can make sure that we are secure and autonomous and living the life that we want to be so that we can be together with our family and our loved ones, sometimes we're doing that at the expense of being present and together with them. What if technology is not the root cause but the symptom of a deeper need in each and every one of us? A deeper need for the way that God has designed us to live and operate in relationship with Him, ourselves, and with one another in this world? What if our problem is much older than the iPhone or the cotton gin? or mass transportation. In the 16th century, there was a French philosopher named Michel de Montaigne. And he offered a a new and different vision for what a flourishing life would be like. He grew up in a time when the Protestants and the Catholics were warring against one another, where the economic disparity was causing great injustice and unrest. And he proposed that maybe it's our ideas of flourishing that are the problem. And so he coined this idea, this philosophy of imminent contentment to curate our lives moment by moment with a sort of non-attached attachment. And he said of death and suffering, my hope is that death and suffering would find me planting cabbages without a care or a thought as to the cabbages or to death and suffering. And so those who followed Montaigne and were influenced by his thought began to set out to be non-attached but attached to all kinds of experiences, to curate happiness and contentment. And in 1831, another French philosopher, de Tocqueville, traveled to America 
where he saw Montaigne's philosophy lived out and noted that America had taken this concept of imminent contentment and democratized it as the pursuit of happiness. The inalienable right for all men and women created equal under God and blessed and ordained by him to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To curate imminent contentment amongst the noise, the suffering, the injustice of life. Well, what they don't tell you is that in the pursuit of happiness, happiness is never promised. Just only the pursuit. And so with all the opportunities that we have to belong with one another, to connect with God and grow in our faith, to love and serve the world and make this world into a better place, all that we have is the pursuit. It's not simply that we are distracted people who are distracted from a higher purpose. It's that the Western world that you and I inhabit is cultivated on the foundation that the higher purpose is the distraction. To curate moment by moment, to avoid the need to ask if there's a need for anything else. But what if the issue is even older than that? At the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, we see the creation story. And at the end of creation, God looks over his creation and declares that it is good and enters into rest and joy. To live with his creation and Adam and Eve in intimacy and trust to provide for them and be together in the world. And yet, in just the third chapter, temptation enters in. As the devil comes to tempt Adam and Eve, he does so through deception. By taking the good things that God had offered and put into the world and the way he had designed the world for intimacy with him and trust with him and to say, but what if there was another way? Offering them that instead of life with God, they could pursue imminent contentment. If they would just choose the knowledge of good and evil for themselves, they would be dependent on no one and become whole selves in and of themselves. To just throw off the tyranny of obedience and subjugation and intimacy with God. To rely and depend upon Him for bigger and better answers. And as Genesis 3 describes the curse of sin and brokenness as it enters into the world, it describes it as striving without ceasing. As the pursuit of happiness and contentment without ever finding it. To have love for one another that comes through strife to work and steward the world and opportunities through the sweat of our brow, to bring life into the world only through the pain of childbearing. And ultimately, as Adam and Eve have chosen a new course to decide for themselves to pursue imminent contentment on their own terms, they're left up to that, cast out of the garden, to wander in exile. 
And as we read the scriptures from that point on, we see story after story of God's people and the nations trying to find anything but God to satisfy them, to bring justice, to bring security and peace. And over and over again, as they fall into that idolatry to look to anything other than God to please them, God sends deliverance. A deliverance, a Messiah, a messenger, a new king, a new hope, a new ark, all pointing to what we'll see in our passage this morning. If you have your worship guide, flip on over to Matthew 4, 1 through 11. As we read about this story of Jesus, we're at the beginning of his ministry and work. He's entering back into the story of Adam and Eve, into our story, and the tyranny of intermittent contentment and idolatry to find anything but God to satisfy us. In chapter 3, Jesus is baptized in the proclamation of the fathers that this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And in the very next verse, we pick up reading Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him away to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. This is the word of the Lord. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the first thing that we see in his adult life is a new creation story. Just like the Father looks over creation and declares that it is good, he looks over Jesus and says, This is my Son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. And then like Adam and Eve face temptation in the garden, the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted or tested by the devil. That Jesus would subjugate himself and face the exact same test of loyalty and obedience and trust that Adam and Eve had faced in the garden. You have to understand the work here of the devil in tempting Jesus. It's not to get him to lie 
to cheat, to steal, to murder. It's not simply that he's trying to get him to, uh, to, to sin against the moral law, but there's something deeper at root. Just like it's not the smartphones, but there's something deeper about what it means to flourish and to navigate this life. You see, the temptations here to turn bread into stones. We just read two stories a couple months ago about all the bread that Jesus knows how to make and give away. Here the offer is to make Jesus the king and the ruler over the world, and we know that that is why he comes. For him to, uh, to go and to practice and proclaim the love of the Father for him, the protection of God's providence, to become a spectacle amongst the people, to be known by them and seen. These are all ordinary things that God has bestowed and destined him for. So the temptation is not just the act itself. Just like the problem is not just the distractions themselves. But it's the temptation to move outside of God's plan. What he declares as good and how to get it. The flourishing that he describes and the road to get there to secure it by any other means than loving trust and intimacy with Him. Every act of sin is an act of rebellion. Every act of rebellion is meant to secure something for us that we can't imagine living without in the moment. Because we can't imagine living without moments. The practice associated with this is is what one author calls to cultivate a desert heart. What Jesus does in fleeing from the world and going into the desert, some have looked at that and said, the devil comes and tempts him in a moment of weakness, fasting for 40 days. But early Christian writers didn't look at this as Jesus' moment of weakness, but his moment of strength. I've done a couple multi-week fasts this year, and and I can tell you that on day 14 at least, I felt better than I had ever felt before. And in 40 days of abiding and communing with the Father through the Spirit, Jesus is not at his weakest point. But he is out away from the noise that he might face in silence and solitude and stillness. The temptations of the devil. The temptations and and lingering longings for flourishing. And the temptation to find it in any way apart from the Father and his will. Jesus is inviting us. apart from the things that we can make of ourselves and the world. The temptation to become something and make something of ourselves through becoming a spectacle or curating our ordinary tangible needs or taking power without any suffering. To come into Him that the proclamation of belovedness 
might be ours. What we are invited to in this practice, if we want to become a people free from distractions, a community of people that are engaged in the hope and healing of the cross, in a culture that offers everything else, we need to withdraw to be with Jesus, that that proclamation of belovedness can be preached over us can be made ours to satisfy and fill us that we can see when other things are clamoring for that same intention and investment. You see, Jesus doesn't flee from the noise of the world and go into the wilderness uh, just to... uh, I'm not going to go back over it again. The early church fathers like Henry Nouwen, not Henry Nouwen, but the, the, the priest of the desert, and then Henry Nouwen summarized some of the work that was happening. And he said that the crucible, the wilderness, the place where we leave the noise and the frustration is not a place for therapeutic retreat. It's not a flight and retreat from the battlefield, but silence and stillness is the battlefield. When we leave behind the noise and the voices, the offers of the world, to be apart from them in silence and solitude and stillness, we can see which of these things have a hold of us. What do you think about when you're alone? What do you think about when, you're, when you stop working? What do you think about when your agency is removed from you? Where does your heart turn? The temptations of the devil, the temptations of the soul, the temptations that we face and know in our world, some have classified them as the temptation to form ourselves with the answers to, I am what I do, I am what I have, or I am what others say about me. And so when you are away and apart from others, what longings come up? What distractions come up when there's no technological distractions around you? How is it that your heart hurts? When we enter into that wild heart, that wilderness heart, when we, when we set aside time to be silent and still alone with the Father, we can see the temptations that have a hold of us in our heart. And then like what Jesus does here in answering each temptation with Scripture, we can take His beloved declaration that we are now His children through the obedience of Jesus, through the trust and intimacy of the Son, we are brought near that He might say of us that these are my children and with them I am well pleased. You cannot curate a life of non-attached attachments. Just like you can't think of nothing. When we face the distractions and the temptations of our heart, it's not enough just to push them away, to turn it off. Like pulling out a weed from a pot, something else will grow back in. Unless we plant ourselves in engagement in the heart of God through Jesus Christ. The declaration that this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. 
and that through Him we are brought in to the delight and the love and the goodness of God is Jesus inaugurating a new creation that you and I walk in that we might move away from the noise and engage with that, that we might come back to be a light shining in the darkness for others. Amen.